0: You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series, joining us to talk about his campaign for lieutenant governor in the Democratic primary coming up on September 6th before November's general election is Senator Eric Lesser. Senator Lesser currently represents the First Hampton and Hampshire districts. He was elected back in 2014 and currently sits on a number of committees, including serving as the chairperson for the Senate Committee on Ethics. He also serves as the chairperson on the Joint Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technologies and sits on the Committee on Senate Ways and Means. Senator Lesser has authored legislation to close the pharmacy shopping loophole for addictive opioid painkillers, helped pass the most significant zoning reform in 40 years, and helped pass a student loan bill of Prior to his time in the Senate, he worked for President Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and would go on to work in the Obama White House in a number of roles, including first in the West Wing as the special assistant to senior advisor David Axelrod and later in the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He also worked as a consultant for the HBO political satire show Veep, and he currently hosts a weekly podcast called Lunchtime with Lesser. Senator Lesser, thank you so much for being a part of the program today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Travis. So uh, it's good to turn the microphone around. We'll, we'll have to have you, uh, we'll have to reciprocate the invitation, have you on Lunchtime with Lesser sometime.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. I just say the word, and I will be there. So why now? Why do you want to run for lieutenant governor?
1: Well, I think it's a really important question, obviously, Travis. And so I think the key is, is I really want to be a partner to our next governor on these economic development challenges, particularly, and I think it's important for your folks in North Central Massachusetts to understand that I will put at the center of my agenda as Lieutenant Governor, the idea of regional balance and actually putting our regions, whether it's North Central Mass or Western Mass, the Pioneer Valley where I come from or the South Coast, putting some of our outline regions, our gateway cities, Uh, at the center of the decision-making and the policy-making system on Beacon Hill, rather than what I think we all know the default is, which is uh, really kind of an afterthought. And I think I've got an important role to play there uh, as the lieutenant governor, providing that sense of balance, that sense of regional equity uh, to a ticket and to a governing team. Uh, I think you saw that, just for example, in recent history with Karen Polito from Shrewsbury as a partner to Charlie Baker. You saw that with Tim Murray, from Worcester as a partner to Deval Patrick, who was from Milton. You saw that with Paul Cellucci, uh, who was from Hudson, who was a partner uh, to Bill Weld, who was from Cambridge. So uh, I think it's important uh, in our state, especially when you've got so much concentrated in Boston, to have that perspective coming from the regions.
0: And besides having that perspective, having that kind of seat at the table, um, I know a lot of folks feel that sometimes the resources uh, really don't make it out this way. We talk about that 495-128 belt. So uh, in addition to that perspective, what else do we really need to do to help north central Massachusetts cities like Fitchburg, like Lemonster, like Gardner really achieve our full economic development potential?
1: Well, I think your your region, Fitchburg, LeMister, Gardner, the whole area of kind of North Central uh, Massachusetts is, I think, really right on the cusp of a lot of really exciting breakthroughs and a lot of really exciting opportunities. Uh, I've worked really closely, actually, with your legislative delegation there—Natalie Higgins, Mike Kishmerick, Meg, Meg Gilcoin, John Cronin—you know, our, our good friends and have been partners on this work. Uh, but a couple things: first, we've got to do more around transportation. Uh, we we know uh, that, of course, the state does not end with the MBTA service area. We, of course, have got to invest in and build a strong MBTA, but we've got to do a lot more to improve the commuter rail links uh, and, in particular, to prom- improve the connectivity from of our, our, our are kind of farther out areas like Gardner or Fitchburg get that service improved uh, into Boston. We've got to do a lot more to acknowledge that. Yes, Massachusetts is a state with the kind of Eds and meds, right? The the big the big colleges and the big healthcare systems, but it's also a state that makes things. And in North Central Massachusetts, manufacturing is so important. I chair our manufacturing caucus, uh, and we've done a lot of work specifically around advanced machining. Precision machining, advanced manufacturing, and closing the wait lists at our Vogue schools. These are great jobs, you know, making components for wind turbines, for solar panels, making precision instruments for medical devices. You've got all kinds of companies all around your region that are doing that work. They can't find people. Shame on us if we don't do the training, if we don't put the investment in our in our in our workforce to help close those gaps. That is one of the most important ways to create jobs in communities like yours, Travis.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about a couple of points you brought up. You mentioned transportation. It was a big focus on getting people into Boston. Have we thought about kind of the reverse commuter, getting people to even just commute between north central mass communities as one of those ways that we can overcome traffic, but also uh, overcome what's often a barrier of employment for many?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, there, there would obviously be a lot of people going from Lemonster to Boston or Fitchburg to Boston, or but uh, there's also going to hopefully also be a lot of people traveling from Boston to those communities. And you've seen this play out in Worcester, right? When they first improved the rail link uh, between Worcester and Boston, there was this assumption that you were going to see all these people load onto the train in Worcester in the morning, head to Boston for work, head back in the evening. They've actually seen a lot of the inverse of that, which is a lot of people that live in the Boston area because Worcester has become such a hot market economically are commuting to Worcester to go to work. So I, I think we've got to change some conceptions here about which directions the economy is going to be moving. And then you're exactly right, Travis. We've got to do a lot more to improve the connectivity of among our within our regions. So one uh, policy area that I've worked on for several years is something called regional ballot initiatives. It's a little bit of a mouthful, uh, but basically what this is, is it would allow clusters of communities. So take your your service area or your kind of catchment area for your chamber. You would be able to organize those communities into a, a regional transportation zone, so to speak, that would be able to keep money local, invested locally in things like, let's say, rapid bus service connecting different downtowns or even a trolley service or, or a light rail line uh, or things like a, like a van shuttle service to help with, uh, with other transportation issues or new bus lines. Uh, that would be a really, really important policy innovation Almost every state in the, in the country allows that type of uh, financing. Our state does not. Uh, and I've, I've worked on legislation over the last several years to change that. As lieutenant governor, I would certainly p- partner with and really champion the idea of our regions working together to improve connectivity within their region. So, you know, just as an example for me closer to home of this, you know, I represent two cities, Springfield and Chicopee. The Pioneer Valley corridor, the really spine of the Connecticut River is three big cities, Springfield, Chicopee, Holyoke, and then several communities uh, and suburbs that kind of hug those cities. The transportation within and between those communities is is really lacking. The PVTA, which is our regional transit authority, you know, just can't, can't and hasn't gotten the resources and the funding that they need to really make that work. An initiative like regional ballot initiatives would allow those communities to band together to, for example, set up new rail service or set up new um, trolley services or set up new uh, or innovative uh, work around uh, van shares and ride pools. So really, really important. And it's definitely something that I would I would put a big focus on.
0: Now, as we talk about the tight labor market, the great resignation continues. I know you mentioned vocational schools and tech schools. What else do we need to do, and what else would you advocate for as Lieutenant Governor to help improve that tight labor market? Are we, do we need to just keep focusing on education, or are there other aspects we need to focus on as well?
1: Well, I think you, you've got a couple things going on all at once in the labor market, right? And I, I've been co chairing for the last several months a, a, a cross-government effort around the future of work, where we've been asking this exact question, Uh, you would have to go pretty far back, actually, in American history to find a time where people's work patterns changed as dramatically as they have over the last two years, right I mean there were already some trends towards hybrid work there were some trends towards remote work but it was it was fairly small a little bit esoteric uh, and you've seen in two years you know really the way everybody functions the fact that you and I are doing this over a zoom call right is just an example of how of how much of the way work has changed uh, in the last two years so i think we've got to acknowledge that and be prepared for it and make some policy changes first off we do need to acknowledge the link between transportation And employment Uh, the reason I bring this up is just as an example Springfield a city I represent has an unemployment rate that's more than twice the state average Uh, the challenge is is that a lot of the places where there's high demand for employment are not easy to get to for people who are in Springfield right so if we improve transportation if we make it easier for people to get around that's going to do a lot another uh, big component of this is housing Um, people are uh, kind of chasing higher and higher uh, pay, pay scales because it's getting more and more expensive to live and you can't blame people when they're seeing double digit rent increases, when they're seeing um, home, home prices skyrocketing. So we've gotta do a lot more around zoning reform and housing production to just make the state more affordable for people uh, and to make uh, um, you know uh, make housing prices in particular, which are one of the biggest strains for people, uh, more accessible. I think that's going to do a lot to loosen up the, um, uh, the labor market and, for example, will allow more people to move here. You know, a lot of companies tell me they have job postings. People interview, maybe they live in an out, another state or they live, you know, farther away. They're going to have to relocate. They take a look on Zillow and they're like, holy cow, there's no way I can – you know, make that work. And then we've gotta do a lot more around the supply, and that's where education and job training uh, really, really does make a very big difference. We have some of the best VOC schools in the entire country all of them uh have waiting lists and uh that is so frustrating when you think about it because the companies are telling us that they're desperate for machinists for uh for skilled for skilled uh you know for skilled manufacturers uh and they're going to the vogue schools and they're not uh, producing enough graduates fast enough to keep up with that demand which which of course creates other challenges so you know in a way it's a blessing that we've got a fast-growing economy there's a lot of demand you know, businesses, businesses are reporting that there is a lot of demand. That, that's obviously a very good thing. But we're going to lose our dynamism. We're going to lose our edge if we don't get the labor supply issues resolved and if we don't get the cost of living issues under control. I mean, I fear, Travis, that we're only a few years away from, you know, turning into, for example, San Francisco, which has just become completely unaffordable for people uh, and has seen a huge exodus of people because they, there just literally is nowhere for people to live.
0: We talk about housing production and new construction climate change is often kind of goes hand in hand in that discussion. The Commonwealth is working towards zero carbon emissions by 2050. Do you think that's the right approach to address climate change as we look at things like new housing production and other avenues?
1: Uh, I do think that those goals are right. Uh, I do think that we need to uh, be very transparent with business, with industry about those goals. Uh, And I think we need to create benchmarks along the way. Uh, One of the things that we learned uh, from previous efforts is, is if you set an abstract, goal very far into the future but don't create any kind of benchmarking system along the way to track progress and to incentivize progress you end up falling behind because decisions get kicked down the road right and uh and investments get delayed and then before you know it you're a year or two out from the goal you're very far short of the goal and you don't reach it i think that the the, that Combating climate change and the changes and in the investments we need to make in our economy are actually a huge Opportunity to create a lot more jobs to create a lot more business growth Think about how many electricians we're going to need to get all these solar panels installed Think about how many skilled carpenters and roofers We're going to need to get all of these uh, uh, roofs repaired and insulation uh, Systems updated think about the HVAC tax you know, that we're going to need to get cooling systems and heating systems into a more efficient green uh, place. So this is a big opportunity for our state, and we a lot of the innovation uh, and a lot of the companies doing the work around both the installation and the updating and the innovation and the science behind that are here in Massachusetts. So I think it's a big opportunity, uh, but it's got to be done in collaboration with the private sector, uh, and it's got to be done in partnership with the private sector. And there needs to be very consistent communication uh, between the state and, uh, and, and the business community about what the expectations are, what the timeline is for those expectations. And the state needs to do its part to make sure that the training programs, the workforce, the costs uh, are being shared in, a, in, a, in an equitable uh, way.
0: And I know you talk about the job creation. and That's fantastic to hear about these new jobs that will be created. But there is that cost component uh, for some right. of these installations for these upgrades. And a lot of small businesses are wondering, will I be able to afford that transition to all electric? Will I be able to afford the um, infrastructure that's got to go into my old building? Will I be able to afford that? So how can we do that in a way that's not cost prohibitive to our small businesses?
1: Well, I think the key there is 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 transparency and communication about the goals and the benchmarks and then the planning, and then government needs to be responsive to the legitimate feedback it gets from communities. I've dealt with this a lot uh, as chair of the Manufacturing Caucus, uh, where we deal with a lot of manufacturing companies all over the state. I represent a manufacturing center uh, in Springfield and Chicopee, and then I have dozens of machine shops and uh, and other manufacturers that kind of line the Ludlow and Chicopee Rivers and the Connecticut River and Western Mass. And um, they've communicated to us that, you know, rising energy prices are a challenge. Um, That, you know, that uh, that mandates that come without proper planning or support create big challenges for them. And I think there it it really is about making sure government is responsive uh, and is being uh, realistic with the business community about what can be achieved when. Uh, And I think a success there is when, for example, I've had multiple companies and I know it's not perfect and there's a lot of issues with how solar is working. But I have had many success stories in my communities of businesses and factories that have switched over to solar and have actually made money out of it because they're able to sell those credits back to the grid uh, when, the, when, the, when the panels pr- are, are producing extra energy. And in some cases have gotten their energy bills to zero or even negative. So we've got to take what's worked, you know, some of, some of those incentive programs, some of those uh, tax credit programs to kind of help the transition over to clean energy. And we've got to scale that up to broader sections of the economy.
0: You have a number of businesses within your district, number of manufacturing uh, spots as well. When you look at the pandemic and how it's exacerbated some issues, um, some existing issues, one of the biggest issues probably affecting uh, your constituency and, and folks across the Commonwealth has to do with the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. Uh, we've even had businesses here in North Central Mass that kept their full workforce throughout the entire pandemic. They still saw large increases to their contribution, uh, despite ARPA funds being appropriated to try and fill that that financial gap right there. What do you propose as a more long-term solution to the matter if you're elected this fall and, and serve on the next administration?
1: Well, for, for me, this is very simple because uh, I've dealt with this quite a lot. Uh, the, I have a lot of small businesses. You know, I represent a region with a very similar economy uh, to yours, Travis. The our, I actually supported legislation. Uh, Bruce Tarr and I, uh, who's the uh, Senate Minority leader, the Republican leader in the Senate, we actually worked in bipartisan fashion to file legislation to use a portion of the ARPA money to pay down that, that, that unemployment insurance deficit so that businesses weren't going to get hit with those solvency fund assessments. That's the simplest way to do this, and that's what I would I would push for as lieutenant governor. By the way, many other states, including Ohio uh, and um, and Michigan and several several other states, have done exactly that. They've taken Port Maryland did that as well, taken a portion of the very significant uh, federal rescue money that's been sent to states and used that to pay down the unemployment insurance uh, uh, solvency uh, fund. Look, I think it's deeply unfair uh, to ask what's largely small and medium-sized businesses to pay for what was essentially a, a, a very necessary and, and emergency response to a, a nat- what was really a natural disaster in terms of a once-in-a-century pandemic. And just as you said, Travis, many of our businesses, including essential businesses that were manufacturing medical devices and were making PPE and were integral parts of the response to COVID are now years later, getting hit with these very, very uh, onerous and very high assessments for something that helped all of society. So the cost needs to be spread out across everyone. Everyone's got to pay in their fair share. And the simplest way to do that is to use some of the Recovery Act money. We have more than $2 billion still unspent, uh, of the recovery money that came from Washington. And I've been a big proponent, and as Lieutenant Governor, I would be a big proponent of using a portion of that to, to pay down the UI funds so that uh, businesses aren't hit with that assessment.
0: And looking at the pandemic, you've had to weather this as a state senator. When you look at how the current administration has handled the pandemic, um, how would you say that they've done? And if elected, um, what do you think needs to be done differently as we kind of move into this next phase of the pandemic with things reopening and with with mask advisories changing?
1: Well, the key is clear and consistent communication. Uh, and I think as lieutenant governor, one of the one of the things I, perspectives I would bring is really almost as like the constituent services director for the state, you know, being on the phone with the local public health directors, with the with the mayors, with the town managers, uh, you know, across the state, really almost as the sort of first warning or early detection system around what needs to happen. I do give the Baker administration a lot of credit for many aspects of their response. There were a couple specific things I think were lacking. Massachusetts completely bungled the initial vaccine rollout. People remember the website crashing. People remember the long lines uh, at the at the uh, mass vaccination sites. Certain regions, like north central mass, didn't have mass vaccination sites at all uh, in the beginning. Uh, there was really kind of unnecessary mass confusion, uh, back. people think, back to a year ago or more when that was first going on. I think better planning there uh, could have avoided a lot of stress and a lot of aggravation for people and very... Well, would have saved lives uh, because last year, you know, as vaccines were getting rolled out was one of the high points in terms of death counts and and virus counts. Uh, I also think that there was a mistake made in terms of privatizing so much of the response. Uh, I think that uh, probably MEMA, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency, should have been utilized more. And uh, there should have been more investment in local boards of health and local first responders because at the end of the day, they know their communities the best. I think this this decision to kind of privatize large portions of the response and to hand these no bid contracts out to these out of state vendors unnecessarily slowed the the rollout of vaccines and, uh, and created, I think, a lot of unnecessary costs. So. Um, You know, I think there are some important lessons learned there. I think as Lieutenant Governor, one of the things I would really prioritize is working on building out capacity at our local boards of health, working on more consistency across communities um, there was a lot of tension created because one board of health in one town was saying one thing, it would immediately cross a, bo- a border and the very neighboring town would be saying something completely different. That breaks down trust, that, that makes it harder for businesses, it makes it harder for citizens and everyday people to kind of know what's allowed and what's not. So I think investing in and building out our our, our local boards of health and creating more consistency is, is something that's going to really need to be a priority and will be something I prioritize as
0: lieutenant governor. When it comes to other states, uh, we find that most of them fund tourism at a lot higher rate than we do. Uh, despite the yes. fact that tourism here in Massachusetts is the third largest industry, um, we're often at the bottom of the pack though when it comes to actually supporting our state's tourism. If you become part of the next administration, what do you recommend that we do differently to capitalize on the assets that we have here and really make us more competitive, especially with the other New England states that are all competing for some of the same, uh, same visitor dollars?
1: Oh, no, that's music to my ears, Travis, when you say that. Look, I'm a Western math senator, so this is a very, very important industry and sector for us. And uh, I was the chair of tourism, arts, and cultural development uh, when I was uh, in the Senate my first term. So I've done a lot of work around tourism. Uh, And actually, in the economic development bill that I helped author last year, we created something called Tourism Destination Marketing Districts to help, for example, hotels band together to uh, do more tourism marketing and promotions, especially for out-of-state uh, tourists. Look, everybody sees the I Love New York you know uh, ads and you see how effective that's been at driving uh, visitors to the Adirondacks and to the Catskills. We need to do a lot more to promote tourism, especially coming out of COVID. That sector was devastated uh, over the last two years. And it's a very competitive market for us. You kind of alluded to it, Travis, but look, the lion's share of the kind of driving tourists are coming from Metro Boston or Metro New York City. That 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 tourist has a lot of options. They could go to New Hampshire, they could go to Vermont, they could go to upstate New York, they could go to the Cape, they could go to Rhode Island. You know, shame on us if we're not doing everything we can to keep them spending their money in Massachusetts rather than crossing right over to New Hampshire or Vermont, where somebody else gets the sales tax and the room nights and the, and the restaurant visits and everything else. So I think we need a concerted strategy and investment in promotion of tourism, especially for that core Northeast New England market, and doing our best to attract the um, you know the the, the car-based uh, uh, travel and the motor coach based travel, which is largely coming from our neighbors around the Northeast. So, absolutely very important. You think about your region, you know the, the Route 2 area, the um, the Johnny Appleseed Trail, and and, and everything else. Uh, there's really a lot to offer, and it's four seasons, right? You've got it. We're in March. It's maple syrup season, and then uh, you know, and then of course in the summer there's great attractions. In the fall, you have foliage. In the winter, you've got cross country skiing and snowshoeing and all kinds of winter activities. We've we've got to do a much better job marketing that because we're we're being out outgunned, frankly, by our neighboring states. New York especially has put so much money. Uh, into promoting, uh, you know, the Catskills and the
0: Adirondacks really to our detriment. When you look ahead um, and look at the rest of 2022 and look at the elections this fall, if you're elected as part of the next administration, what do you think is going to have to be the number one priority when you get into office with the next governor?
1: Well, I think the most urgent issue really is affordability, cost of living, just, just the general kind of, how kind of hard it is to live here, frankly. I mean, You know, Massachusetts has so much going for it. We have a very fast-growing economy. We have all of these incredible assets. You know, we're we're the headquarters of all of this innovation, life sciences, tech, Uh, but let's be honest, uh, it is very, very expensive to live here and it's getting more expensive. All of the things you alluded to and that we've just talked about in this conversation, Travis, you know, the workforce challenges, the costs of labor, um, the the transition to clean energy, you know, are symptoms of, of more and more costs. You see the inflation numbers, you see what's happening with housing prices and rents. We have got to make it easier on people to live here. So I'm really gonna be focused on, those big items, the, the the housing policy, the transportation issues, the workforce training and the uh, and the labor demand issues uh, that are going to help us stay in front of that. Because if we get that sorted out, the sky's the limit for us in Massachusetts. I mean, what's going to limit us and what's going to force people to move and what's going to hurt our economy is if the costs continue to skyrocket. If we can get the housing production up, if we can get the training done, if we can keep up with the demand in the, in the, the workforce, if we can do those investments in the transportation to connect people to good jobs and good housing opportunities, we're going to keep growing and growing and growing and uh and and life is going to be really good for people. If we don't you see what's happening in California. You see what's happened in San Francisco. You've seen what's happened in other places around the country where the costs just skyrocket, skyrocket out of control. People start to leave uh, and, and life starts to get hard for people. So the cost of living issues is really what I'm going to be zeroing in on.
0: Now, we're going to put you on the clock right now. If you had 60 seconds to convince our listeners why you should have their vote come to Democratic primary in September and then again in November... Uh, What would you say to them starting right now?
1: Uh, It's because I understand North Central Mass. I come from a similar region in the Pioneer Valley in the greater Springfield area. I'm going to be laser focused on what's keeping families up at night, which is the cost of living in our state. Uh, We've got a great state. We've got a lot going for us in Massachusetts. We've got a lot of exciting things happening in North Central Mass in particular, but it's getting very, very expensive to live here. We've got to improve our transportation. We've got to improve and expand our housing options, and we've got to do more to create high-paying, good jobs, especially around manufacturing and voc And then the sky's the limit for us.
0: And, Eric, where can listeners go for more information?
1: So people can check out my website, ericlesser.com, uh, or they can check me out on Twitter, at Eric on Facebook, uh, Eric Lesser MA, or on Instagram, at Eric Lesser. Uh, and uh, yeah, or send me an old-fashioned email, uh, just info at ericlester.com. Uh, and i uh, love to learn more. And um, people can join our mailing list. They can make a contribution if they want. Uh, they can sign up to volunteer because we've got a, a lot of exciting months ahead on the campaign trail.
0: And for those who are tuning in, we've been listening to the election series episode of the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. I'd like to thank Senator Eric Lesser for taking the time to talk to us about his platform as a Democratic candidate in the race for lieutenant governor. The primary is scheduled for September 6th. The general election is slated for November 8th. Senator Lesser, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Travis. Take care. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.